Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started, uh, as you know, we have our culinary medicine program every Friday morning. I hope you took advantage of this morning's quite interesting chia seed pudding. And um, I don't want to tell you that the sprout time from seed to grass in your gut, I won't go over that, but <laughs> let's just hope you're all regular. <laughs> so um, in light of last week's discussion about meal planning on a budget, uh, the, the quiz for today was a question around how would you best prepare for meals on a budget, and we randomly picked from those of you who submitted some uh, ideas. And this one was prepare meals ahead by freezing them and making them in bulk and checking for coupons and flyers. And the person who wrote this was Jennifer Ellsworth. So Jennifer, we have a weekly planner for you that um, is today's gift. Are you in here? Yeah, there you are, Jennifer. Well done. On a somewhat more somber note, the faculty of the Department of Medicine lost a very treasured faculty member and teacher this week, Margot Krasnov. Um, I sent a flyer, a note about that earlier. We don't know much more about what went on, and I don't know much more to tell you about the services that will come up. I know the family is planning a private uh, service for the family this week, and in concert with Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we'll plan a community celebration of Margot's life that will happen in about three or four weeks. That's the most that I know, but we'll be telling you what that will be like. And I know that the Division of General Internal Medicine is interested in creating a memorial lectureship of some sort in her name, in the themes of <clears throat> the many things that Margot was interested in, global health and equity of care and um, many other topics. So. Just wanted you to know that, and I thought we should just take a moment this morning to remember Margot. So just take a few minutes of, uh, a minute of silence, basically. Now I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and thank them for everything that they do and for being here. <laughs> move on to medical grand rounds. So we are delighted today to have Julia Jacobson with us, and uh, she has no financial conflicts of interest to declare. 
In a moment, she will be introduced to us uh, by Amelia Cullinan. Amelia came to us uh, after being uh, at Northwestern University, but she did her palliative medicine training at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, and Sharona tells me that in no uh, unreasonable thought process that the reason that Amelia is such a wonderful clinician, teacher, and colleague of ours may be due in no small part to having worked with our speaker of today. So I'm particularly delighted to have Amelia introduce her. Uh, so without further ado, perhaps you will do that for us. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Juliet Jacobson to Dartmouth-Hitchcock for the Department of Medicine's Grand Rounds today. Juliet received her bachelor's degree in psychology and um, MD from the University of Chicago and a diploma in public health at the University of Cambridge in England. She trained in internal medicine at Columbia University Medical Center and completed her palliative medicine fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's currently an assistant professor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Harvard Palliative Medicine Fellowship at MGH. She's lectured extensively within the region and published numerous journal articles in the past five years. The focus of her teaching and writing is in the arena of communication principles within palliative medicine, with a particular focus on the skills needed to help patients and clinicians navigate the longitudinal challenges of life-limiting illness, to help patients thrive and even grow as they near the end of life. I was fortunate to train under Juliet at MGH and benefited then from her quiet, penetrating wisdom as I made my way through fellowship and early faculty years. She was a mentor as I learned the skills needed to practice outpatient palliative medicine, which is my focus here. In the years since, I've been deeply grateful for the work she's doing to create a cognitive map to give language to the particular psychodynamic work that we do with our patients. And these are skills that are needed by all clinicians who take care of patients who are facing serious illness. And I'm eager to learn more from her today. Please give a warm welcome to Juliet. Can you, can you hear me? You can. Okay. And this is the second reinforcement. Wonderful. So today we're going to talk about building resilience in our patients, um, particularly our patients who have serious illness. And um, as was stated, I have no um, relationships to disclose. And I thought we'd start by thinking about resilience as, as an idea, because there's really a growing literature about this topic, and it's it's an um, exciting time uh, in social psychology, certainly. There's a resilience um, about, uh, for young people. How do you build resilience in your children? How do you become more resilient? And there's also resilience that's talked about for um, people in the workplace as a possible antidote for burnout and for kind of chronic um, underperformance. But today we're really talking about resilience for our patients that are seriously ill. And I wanted to highlight some components of serious illness that make resilience a little bit different. And the first one is that um, as our patients adapt to stress and anxiety and of their serious illness, uh, what's the next thing that happens? They adapt and then something more bad happens. 
right? And so there's something about serious illness that it's not just one adaptation. It keeps going in towards the end of life. And so when we talk with patients about resilience, we sometimes use the language of um, to live as well as you can. Because we want to acknowledge somewhere in that framework that this is really, really hard. And that if you can't be as resilient as you want to be, that that's okay. So that's the first um, caveat with resilience. The second one is uh, a question that I'm often asked when I'm talking to it's usually residents that are rotating with me in clinic. And um, I can see them kind of thinking it. They're like, you know, this resilience stuff is great. It's really interesting. I want my patients to live well. But how does it relate to me as a medical doctor? I trained in internal medicine. I see patients. And I'm not sure how this fits in. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a social worker. And so my answer to that question is that one of our, our probably greatest roles as clinicians, as physicians, as nurse practitioners, is to help our patients with serious illness to make decisions decisions. They need to make medical decisions about the, what they want at end of life and where they want to be. And they also need to make personal decisions about how they want to prepare their family and how they want to say goodbye. And that those decisions are really grounded in their understanding of their medical illness. And so that's where us as clinicians have a framework to really think about how patients are coping with their illness. So I'm going to introduce you to a patient of mine. This is Matt, and uh, his wife has given us permission to, to look at these pictures and, and to talk about his case. He was a patient of mine years ago, and he was uh, in his late 30s when he was diagnosed with um, pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer. So he initially had resectable disease and then later had metastatic disease, and that was when I met him. He was referred to palliative care by his social worker. And he was someone who was a really he was good at using resources. So when that when she suggested that he come to palliative care, he put that on his list and he he made an appointment. And um, I was fairly new. It was kind of in the first few years of my practice, and I hadn't seen that many patients for early palliative care. Right. So Matt had just been diagnosed with his cancer. It was actually a slow-growing cancer, and he didn't have any symptoms. He used to come to see me dressed in his suit. He was a commodities trader. He worked downtown Boston. He would take the train, come see me, and then go back to work. And so my struggle with him, and I'm going to, it's really the struggle of the talk today, is kind of what is my role? Like, was I able to be helpful? Was it actually a helpful thing for him to see palliative care early in the course of his disease? And then what was I going to do with him? Because we weren't going to manage his symptoms. He didn't have any symptoms. So those are our objectives today is to become familiar with the data, and there's now more data than there was back then that really supports early palliative care. So we'll take a look at that. And then my hope is to make the work of palliative care, particularly early palliative care, more transparent. So you have a sense of what's going on in the room. And then finally, to give you some of the skills. These come out of palliative care, but many of them were stolen from primary care, actually. And we're going to give them back to you today. But so hopefully you can take some of them with you to use, because many of them aren't that time consuming. So luckily for me, um, in thinking about this problem, there's, there's growing and kind of ever-increasing strength of evidence for early palliative care. And some of the first work, as you probably know, was done here by Marie Bakitas. And she, and this was, you know, this was new at the time. Nobody thought this was even going to be possible for patients to see early palliative care. They thought the patients wouldn't show up. Um, so she took patients uh, within 8 to 12 weeks of diagnosis. She randomized them to usual care or a nursing intervention. And what was really lovely about this study is her intervention was scripted. So it was scripted 
than manualized. We have a really good sense of what happened and what, and you know, we can reproduce that in other sites. And then she looked at outcomes that are important in cancer care. So she looked at quality of life, at symptom control, resource use, and mood. And she found improvements in quality of life and mood. And what she found was that the symptom burden was pretty low because these patients were pretty early in their disease trajectory. So it kind of made sense that there wasn't that big of a change. And what's really important about this is that quality of life is really a very robust measure in cancer care. I used to think it was kind of light and fluffy until I read about it more. And it turns out your quality of life at diagnosis um, predicts your mortality. And changes in quality of life through the course of your, of your care also are correlated with mortality. So it's a robust measure. So to be able to improve quality of life is a very important outcome for us. And to do it with a nursing inter intervention is, is remarkable because many of these patients um, were managed by phone. They would come in. If, if they had more um, problems or symptoms to manage, but this was uh, for a remote area. So this was a very important in our field. The next piece of um, research that came out that really supported this approach was done in my institution by Jennifer Temmel. And so she looked at similar outcomes, quality of life, mood, and then survival was also looked at. And I think it was looked at in Bikidus as, as well. The interesting thing about survival was it, they had to check survival to make sure that palliative care wasn't actually making the patients worse. Right? That was why it was, the IRB said, you know, you have to follow survival. And then, ironically, the patients lived longer. And they lived about three months longer, which in, in cancer world, that's, that's amazing. These are patients with non-small cell lung cancer. So they had a, a life expectancy of a year. And they, the, the patients in the palliative care group were able to live three months longer. It's about the same benefit that you would get from responding to first-line chemotherapy, a platinum-based chemotherapy. So it was a rem, it's a remarkable finding. And we're in the process of repeating it. Um, both both at our institution now, and then this institution is going to be a part of the um, multi-site study. So we'll, we'll see what we find. But at my institution, since that work's come out, we've spent a lot of time thinking about what, what caused that effect, what, what could possibly be happening. And this is a kind of a schema of what we think is going on. And you can see there's lots of variables. It's not just one thing. It's not just quality of life, although that's a very robust measure. It's probably other things like symptom control, like mood. And today we're going to focus on some of, that, some of these characteristics that are maybe a little bit more obscure. Um, patients' prognostic awareness, so how patients understand their prognosis or more generally their illness and what's going to happen to them, and then how they cope. And we think these two factors, prognostic awareness and coping, are, are probably interrelated, right? So you, you get your diagnosis, you have some awareness that, that you have um, a serious illness, and then that triggers your coping. So now you're trying to adapt to this new information. Over time, as patients become more adept at adapting, they get better at it, they can often tolerate more discussion about their prognosis. So we see these two things as, as mutually reinforcing. So we're going to go back to my patient to think about how we can use the data that I've just um, described to you to actually take care of him. So I followed Matt monthly for, for many years, actually, two or three years, and he remained asymptomatic for quite a while. And we did some stuff. We did some advanced care planning. He chose his health care proxy, and we talked about code status. And he was, he was young and healthy, and he had young kids. He wanted to be full code, which seemed very reasonable. He did some legacy work, thinking about how to prepare his family and kind of make a book for his children. And then I did this, this thing that we've started to do in clinic, which is I assessed his prognostic awareness. And that's what we're going to talk about, about that process. So we think about prognostic awareness as a very dynamic 
a dynamic process. And what the problem patients have is even when you've gotten news of prognosis, and I'm using that word very, very generally, meaning possibly even just that your disease isn't curable, not necessarily time or what this is going to be like. But when you have that news, you, you can't be in that place all the time. It's too stressful. It's overwhelming. So what patients do, and this is a healthy response, is they swing to this place of hopefulness. And so over time, and sometimes even within a meeting, I'll watch them move between hopefulness that can look like denial. It can be like hoping for a cure, hoping for the wrong diagnosis, hoping the chemotherapy can manage this like a chronic disease for 20 years, real hopefulness, to other times when they can be more realistic and think about, you know, they'll make references to the future or getting their affairs in order, and I get a sense that, oh, you do really understand this is serious. And so um, we see this, and the swings tend to be wider earlier. So when you've made a patient who's um, an early referral, they'll often be mostly hopeful. And then over time, it becomes a little bit more integrated. When I was working with Matt, I had this kind of aha moment with this, because sometimes it's so quick you can miss it. And I was chatting with him, and um, he was still working, but he was getting ready to stop working. He was feeling more sick, and he was saying things like, you know, this might be my last summer. And so I kind of really thought he, under he understood, and he was a pretty straight shooter. He, he was very upfront about his prognosis most of the time. And then as we were talking about his work, which was a, kind of a domain that was really important to him, he loved his work, he'd worked very hard to kind of rise up. And he was preparing to leave it, and he wanted to be very careful about leaving it. And we had lots of conversations about what that would be like. And finally, he said, you know, you don't get the same job back after you leave. Right? So he was thinking about, how am I going to leave this? So if I get better, I can come back and still position myself well. Right? And so there's this, there are these, just these disconnects in how patients are able to hold this very, very heavy information. And the mistake we make as clinicians, and it's often our medical students, our residents, you see that moment of hopefulness. The patient talks about the chemotherapy curing the cancer, and you're like, oh, nobody told them. They don't understand what's happening. And we mistake that hopefulness for denial and for kind of an inability to communicate on our part. And it's probably more complicated than that. And we have lots of data that kind of shows us this. So this is data um, from Jennifer Temmel's study. So it's this, this cohort of patients with a non-small cell lung cancer that's randomized to early palliative care. And we ask them, you know, at diagnosis, is your cancer curable? And then what's the goal of therapy? And you can see in the, um, oh, I don't even know if I can point. The, um, here we go, this, this top yellow, 32% say that their cancer is curable at this point. And 69% are hoping to get rid of all the cancer with the chemotherapy. And so what I think when I see this data is I think this is the oscillation that we're picking up when we ask patients these questions. It's, it's probably more complicated, but with this cohort, they've ran, been randomized to palliative care. So we, we know that there is some intervention where they have a deeper understanding of their prognosis and that they've been randomized to palliative care. And yet a third of them are still, when they check that box, um, you know, not wanting to think as deeply as they could about it. The important thing with early palliative care is we have increasing data that we can, we can affect this. We can affect these beliefs. And with time, patients who were followed with early palliative care either remained accurate, so they were accurate and stayed accurate, or they became ac more accurate in their prognostic understanding. So we think that's an important intervention that we do. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you some of the outcomes associated with that. 
when we look at patients' patient outcomes and we think about what does this mean if a patient understands that their, progn their prognosis, um, we, this first study is a study that looked at patients who checked that they were at peace and that they both understood their prognosis. And they had better mental health they had a better quality of death, and their caregivers had better bereavement. So we think this is important for patients and for families that they have this understanding. And I, I want to be, be careful. I'm not saying everybody has to know exactly what their prognosis is, um, and, and that's not right for everybody, but to just have some sense of what's going on so that they can plan. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that sense might be. The second study is a way of looking at these um, prognostic awareness by whether patients had a discussion. So this is a cohort study. These are patients with metastatic disease which ha who had about a year to live, estimated by their physicians, and they were followed over time. And what they did in this study is the patients were asked to check a box if they ever had a discussion about end of life. And we don't know what that discussion was. It was just whether they thought that that had happened. And then we looked at outcomes to see what happened to those patients. And the patients who had that sense that they had talked about this had lower rates of ventilation. They had lower rates of resuscitation, lower rates of ICU enrollment, and higher earlier hospice enrollment. So you know, outcomes that we think are important for this population. And one of the big worries about doing this work was always that you're going to ruin quality of life. You're going to talk about this. You're going to make people sad, and that's not a good outcome. And what this study showed us is this population who, raised, who was able to check that box that they'd had this discussion, they didn't have more depression. They didn't endorse more worry. So it felt like we can really move forward, that this is a safe, effective intervention to, to be talking with our patients about these things. And so here's the question about how much do you need to talk about this with them? Because I, I always wonder about this. I have multiple conversations with my patients, and I, and I feel like, do they, do they have to repeat it back to me? You know, how clear does the understanding have to be about prognosis? And so this is done in the 90s, but it kind of answers this question, interestingly. So Jane Weeks took this cohort of patients, and this is part of the data. This is actually the data for the sickest group. So these were patients who their physicians estimated there was less than 10% chance that they would live six months. So these are very, very sick patients. And then they asked the patients what they thought their chances of living six months was. And what they found is that there was a cutoff about at 90%. So if the patients just had a little bit of doubt, like 10% doubt that they might not live for 10 months, they made very different decisions about what they wanted in terms of resuscitation. So it wasn't like they had to have 50 or 100% know that they were sick. They just had to have a little sense that time was a little bit shorter than they were hoping. So it's very important as we think about how we calibrate these discussions with our patients. The other thing that helps us calibrate is this work. This was done by Randy Curtis. And, and I love this because I, I love this framework, and it's so great to me that there's this interesting paper about it. So what they did is they asked patients how they balance their desire for explicit information with hope. Right? So it's the same problem. How do you swing back and forth between these two poles? And what they asked them to do is pick the representation that they thought most described how they were able to balance these two ideas. And then they did interviews with these patients to talk about what it was like to get information and how much information they wanted. And then once they did this, they, their analysis was that they actually divided these patients into two groups. And the one group, which is the group with, uh, with this kind of yin-yang and also this kind of uh, arrows changing, right? So you're hoping for cure, and then the hopes are changing. This group they can label as the more integrated group. And they just by, according to the symbols, and you like this because of the art, right? And, um, and this group actually wanted more explicit information. They were able to say explicit information is more helpful to me. I want my doctors to tell me. 
the group where there was a little bit more um, flipping back and forth between these two ideas. I think this coin is the most dramatic representation of that, but it's scaled to some degree. There's also some sense of, of balance or lack of balance with, with these two ideas. These patients were much more ambivalent when they talked about what they wanted, and they talked about wanting their doctor to be careful, and the doctor shouldn't always tell patients information. So just to give you a sense, so when we're reading this back and forth, part of the information we're getting is how comfortable are you with this information, and how much do you want me to share. And this is just another way that we try and do that with our patients, because we really want to calibrate carefully what we share with them. And the challenge with this is that patients are, are fundamentally ambivalent about a lot of this information. This is a great survey that just illustrates this point so clearly. So Jean Kutner asked patients, you know, uh, what, patient, how, what percentage of patients want their doctor to be honest? Any guesses? That's 100. They all want us to be honest. Um, which, sure. What, patient, what percentage of patients want us to be optimistic? It's 91. It's high. So there's the bind, right? That's that, how do you do that? And it's, it, that's not possible to always be able to do that. And so that's where we sit with this information. It's a tricky, a tricky place. So what we do and what I did with Matt was to always reassess on every visit. I'm trying to get a sense of where patients are and what kind of message they're giving me about their desire for prognostic information. If I walk into a room, and I'm, I'm talking a lot about oncology because I work with a lot of oncology patients, but I think some of the lessons translate. But if I walk into a room and a patient's you know, responding to their chemotherapy, they're feeling great, they don't have any pain, and we're talking about going fishing, those messages are of hope, and, and it might not necessarily be a good time to talk about other things. Um, so I'm trying to read that balance as I work with these patients. There are times when we want to kind of go to that other place. And part of early palliative care, I kind of call this the well times. So they're, they're well, and we're kind of trying to make decisions about how much do we celebrate the wellness and how much do we try and think about preparing for the future. And so I'm going to give you a couple techniques that we use to think about preparing for the future as a way to deepen prognostic awareness for our patients. And the first one is this, the box. We call it the box. It's a metaphor. And it's really um, a metaphor for control and for containment. And patients like it because it gives them control over some of these discussions. So we'll say, you know, these discussions can be like they're in a box. And we can decide whether we want to open the box and look around and see what's inside and talk about some of these things. Or, and when we're done, we, we can close the box. And what I find that that does is it patients feel like they have control over the discussion. It also sends a message that we don't even always have to talk about these things, right? We may open the box and get some good work done and then put it away for a few months and make that decision. They also like it because it's a box that they can take home with them. So if they want to think about how to manage some of these discussions with their family, this is also something that they can use at home to give people control over what, what they talk about and initiate discussions. So we found this to be very helpful. For, for patients. The other helpful technique that I found are these hypothetical questions. And this is often the kind of question that you use once you've opened the box. So hypothetical questions are useful because they're not real. We're not talking about you dying. We're not talking about your treatment not working. We're talking about the what ifs. 
if that were to happen, can we think a little bit about what might happen? And what I say to people, because advanced care planning's kind of gotten a bad rap because it's been hard to find data um, linking outcomes to advanced care planning unless you're really doing a systems-based approach. But I think the thing with advanced care planning, and which this is really a variation of, it doesn't matter what the patients say. It's actually the practice of having the discussion that counts. It's like lifting weights. We're getting ready for, at some point, we're going to have to have this discussion for real. And it's much easier for you and for me if you've thought about it before and if we've practiced thinking about it. So what they decide in this isn't as important as the process of thinking about these questions. Um, so we use, the, you know, is there ever a time when you find yourself thinking about the what ifs? I find the what if language very helpful when I try and talk with this. Or do you ever worry about blah, blah, blah? And we don't do this all the time, right? This is every once in a while. And, and you know, it can be enough for a while. If patients don't want to talk about this, they also just, they'll say no. I say, ever think what are worth the what ifs? And they'll say no. And then we'll, we'll go on to the next question. And so, I, you know, it's, I feel like it's a fairly safe question. The only time that you can get in trouble with hypothetical questions is when it's not hypothetical anymore, right? So your patient is actually pretty sick and they're actually not responding to their treatment. And you, I think, you ask them, have you ever thought about what if you don't respond? It, it, you know, it's, it's too late for that type of question. You have to have a more direct approach. Um, but early in the, in, the, in the process, these can feel much safer. And so this is where we kind of get to the problem with, with talking about the what-ifs, with opening the box, um, with developing prognostic awareness to some degree, is that we can't do that all the time, right? It's, it's serious stuff. It's hard stuff. It's hard work. Um, it's depressing. It can be unhelpful to talk about this stuff too much. And my big worry is that patients get adversely conditioned to coming to see me. You know, that they think this is what they're going to have to do when they come to their palliative care appointment. So I'm always pretty clear that we, this is a small part of what we do. And also your referrers may worry. If they have a patient who's, who's really struggling, they're going to worry about sending them to palliative care if that's what the topics are going to be. And so we, we need to have something else that we do with these visits with our patients that are well. And that's really where um, the adaptive coping comes in. So we're going to spend the next part of this talk talking about adaptive coping and how we can support our patients in this. Just to remind you, this is part of uh, this complex network of um, variables that's going to hopefully affect health behaviors and survival. And one of the things that we think um, adaptive coping may help with is actually mood. So in our study, the study that we did with the patients with a non-small cell lung cancer who were randomized to palliative care, they had an improvement in three months in their mood, significant improvement in anxiety and depression. And the interesting thing about them is that they weren't treated with more antidepressants. So something else was happening to improve mood that wasn't um, pharmacologic. And so we wonder, is this coping? Is this something that's happening? The other thing that coping may be mediating is some of the health behaviors and health choices that patients make. One of the things we noticed in our study was that patients got the same amount of chemotherapy in both groups. So if you got palliative care or if you got standard care, you got the same number of lines of chemotherapy. But what was different was um, the time of last chemotherapy dose till death. And it was longer in the palliative care group. So the, the hypothesis is that there's something about palliative care that's helping patients to really game that tipping point where chemotherapy is helping, 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 and then it's not helping anymore. Patients who had palliative care were able to have a sense of their body and stop a little bit sooner, and that may have helped them live a little bit longer. Because at some point, when you're very debilitated, chemotherapy can, can cause harm. Um, so we wonder if coping is something that's mediating that 
that decision-making. So I'm going to introduce you to another patient. This is Betsy. She, um, she is not my patient. She's a patient of my colleague. And what we've done is we've videotaped some interactions of her so we can really think about what this coping looks like. So she uh, was 65. At the time of these videos, she'd been diagnosed 18 months prior. So that you'll see her at that age. And she'd had kind of an up and down course. She'd had um, a partial SBO that had resolved. And then she'd had this uh, lower bowel obstruction that was actually treated surgery, surgically. So she had been at this moment of crisis and then moved through it and actually had had some good time after that. And what we're going to talk about is the ways that clinicians can work with patients like Betsy to empower adaptive coping for them. And the first, the first thing we're going to talk about is this idea of focusing on what can be done. And this is really sets a framework for this, this work of how do you think about helping patients cope. Uh, it's a framework that I've alluded to, this idea of living well despite the illness. And really what's important to me when I think about this framework is that the clinical place is a safe place to express hope. Because if, if we don't have that with our patients, it's going to be really hard to align with them because they're, they're, they're really hopeful and they need hope, as, as, as we all do. Um, and so we want to make sure that palliative care is, is a place to, to do that. And then we're going to focus on things that can be done. It's a very active framework. And so this is kind of a pictorial representation of what that looks like when we think about what we're doing with our patients. So the, the big circle, the big light green circle, is living, right? And there's dying in the corner. So it's a framework that focuses on living and acknowledges that dying may happen at some point. It's in the picture, but it's not the focus of what we're doing. And then as we work um, with patients to empower their coping, our hope is their living becomes more full, so represented by more green, that they're able to do that better. And then as they get better at that, we're able to bring the dying into the discussion a little bit more. It's still not the main framework, but they're able to tolerate a little bit more discussion. So this is what we're aiming for with this type of framework. And I'm going to show you an example of a clinician talking with a patient. The clinician is Vicki Jackson, and the patient is Betsy. And what she's doing is she's kind of she's setting this framework for this patient so that they can work together um, in this space. And I'll show you what happens in the next frame. So you're going to see two, but this is the first one. Usually it starts itself, but goodness, we piloted this. And do you oh, here see we go. yourself as living with the cancer now or dying with the cancer? Uh, living mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah. I don't want to see myself as dying with it. Yeah. Not I, right now. Because I don't see that either. And I think it's interesting because the other thing you don't say in the obituaries is how people adapt and live with it. Yeah. And then there will be a phase when they're dying from it. But the key thing I think that's such a challenge is how do you live in the context of knowing that life isn't as long as what you thought it would be. Right. And that's not that's not easy. No. But the thing that I've seen you do in this is find all these ways to stay grounded, you know, to stay grounded in what you're doing and what brings you joy every day so it really feels like living. All right. So I show you that because it's, it's pretty short. 
she sets it pretty tightly. And you can see she does it over and over again, where she's, she's saying, we're living, we're not thinking about dying. We know that might happen, but right now we're focusing on living. And so I just thought it was a nice clip to get, for you to get a sense of what that could feel like clinically. Once we've set that framework, then we work with patients to kind of think about what they're doing already to cope with the illness. And so we identify behaviors and we encourage those behaviors. And I'm, um, and I'm gonna show you just some of, of what patients do. And people do this instinctively. Uh, they use distraction, right? So they, they, they take their mind off their work, they read, they watch TV, they stay optimistic. And we really encourage this as a, a form of healthy coping to, to have a time when you almost forget. Sometimes patients need permission to be able to forget because they're so worried that if they're really good patients, they're gonna really understand what's going on. But we say, you know, do some stuff where you don't have to think about this. Gratitude is a way that patients cope with illness. Joy, really experiencing beauty and excellence. Some patients meditate, others use flow. If patients had a task that they found both challenging and exciting, like playing the piano or, or a hobby, that can be something where you take your mind off what's happening. And for some, it's problem solving, figuring out what all the problems are with their illness and, and figuring out how to prepare. What we find is we usually try and augment what patients are already doing, and then we may suggest something else, too, if they're able to take that in. And it's very individualized. Um, an example might be if you have a patient who is very emotional and very overwhelmed by what's happening, I might suggest distraction, right? Distraction is pretty easy and as a way to modulate some of the intense emotions that patients are feeling. <laughs> The next thing we do is we respond to and build positive emotion. And this is really an exciting um, place of research. You know, it used to be that um, positive emotion was kind of brushed aside, and now people are really identifying it, they're making constructs for it, they're figuring out what outcomes are. It's its, its own independent um, dimension of mental affect. And what we find is um, encouraging po positive emotion helps patients to feel better and to be more resilient. And what we have during well times when patients are in clinic and early palliative care and they don't have a lot of active medical problems are there's times to kind of talk about what went well, what were important life events, discussing feelings such as relief and gratitude. And sometimes I give them exercises to do. This is work that is very interesting. It's from, from Fredrickson. And what she's found, and this isn't for patients with life-limiting illness, this is for all of us. She's found that to flourish, to have kind of optimal enjoyment and happiness of life, you need to have a ratio of three to one, positive to negative emotions, right? So you need to be cultivating times when you feel good all the time. And it doesn't have to be like you win the lottery good. It means like you ate a piece of chocolate and you really like chocolate and it really tasted good for a minute, right? Or you saw something beautiful out of the corner of your eye and that you're attending to those and you're gathering those so that when something not so great happens, you're, you have more of a buffer to manage that. The data for marriage is it's like five or seven to one. It's even higher for, in case anyone's married. That, you know, there's research now about what predicts good outcomes in these things. So I share this information with our patients because I say, you know, we are in a really tough time. And if it was three to one before, we need to have at least three to one now. And so what I'll encourage them to do is track this. So if they, at the end of the day, can write down three great things that happened, that both it encourages them to remember and re-experience 
experience those things as they're writing them down. It also encourages them to track things during the day and be more mindful of these events. So I found this to be a very helpful tool with patients. This isn't a tool that I would use um, right after a diagnosis. When someone's really grieving their, um, their mortality and their, their situation, it, it's, it's too up. But as patients start to kind of settle in and adapt, this can be something that can be helpful to help them modulate their experience. Another way of doing this is um, a, a appreciative reflection writing, right? So this, it does the same thing. It, it, it kind of helps you re-experience good things in your day. So if you have patients that like to journal, this is another way to, to, to practice the same um, exercise, thinking about what went well, what surprised me, what experiences were most meaningful. So there's really good data. Uh, some of this data comes from physician wellness and burnout. But there's good data to suggest that these texts can be helpful for patients um, in crisis. And so I'm going to show you the second half of that clip you were watching. Vicky's um, set that frame, and then Betsy kind of pretty spontaneously, hang on, she pretty spontaneously starts talking about her positive emotions, which is pretty remarkable, because Vicky's pretty set this like, fairly serious frame of living well, but also knowing that there's a cancer. And then look what Betsy, let's look what she does with it. <laughs> thing that I've seen you do in this is find all these ways to stay grounded, you know, to stay grounded in what you're doing and what brings you joy every day, so it really feels like living. Right. And there, there are moments when I wake up and I just feel happy. It may not last more than 15 minutes, but I make sure to tell my husband that I feel happy right now, <laughs> that when we were doing the uh, camping thing, um, I woke up and there was this river running right outside, you know, our place. It was just, it was so beautiful and it just made me happy. So those are the moments that are really important to remember and chronicle and, you know. And appreciation of that even in the midst of this really hard time, there are really beautiful and good things that happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. I have an outdoor shower that is my happy place because you know the sky is up there the birds are flying around and it's just you know it's it's a place i can go in and shut the door and have no concerns it's lovely you know and i think that's important to have those kinds of places you know a place thing that i've seen you do so that clip is Oh, just over a minute, a minute and 10 seconds. So that's the, the kind of intervention that, that's possible in lots of different types of settings. Um, it's, it's brief, but you can see it's pretty, it's pretty powerful that that's able to re-experience those feelings in the clinical setting. Okay. And then the final technique we've used is um, to encourage practical problem solving. And this is something that um, was actually in Bikitas's manual. It's also a technique that's got a pretty good evidence base from primary care. And uh, the idea is that the clinician can work with a patient to define a disease-related problem. Right, so we're not going to solve all the problems, but sometimes there's problems that are related to being sick, that it, it's our purview to think about with our patients, and then figure out achievable goals and evaluate progress. And this should really occur in the setting of understanding the prognosis. You want to be realistic and, and medical about this. An example of this that I had recently, I took care of a patient who um, had a recently diagnosed um, chronic kind of degenerative neurologic condition. He doesn't actually know what it is, but no one thinks that it's going to be treatable. And he went from running marathons a year ago to barely being able to walk around for an hour now. So he's had this incredible 
disease process and loss that he's experiencing. And one of the things that's hard for him in this is that he was somebody who controlled his weight through exercise. So separate from everything else that he's lost, he's terrified of becoming obese with this because this is his mechanism for controlling, controlling that. And so we, we identified that problem as being really, you know, somewhat separate from all the uncontrollable parts of his illness that we were facing. And I sent him to a weight clinic to do CBT with nutrition to see if there was some other way that we could have some control over that problem. Um, and, and I think he found that to be very helpful, that they didn't have to all be mixed together in this, in this really uncontrollable decline. So that's an example of um, problem solving that can be used in the clinical setting. So as patients are doing these things, they, they can tolerate more discussion about prognosis as patients are able to cope better. And I'm going to take you back to the beginning because we, we talked about resilience and I'm hoping that you have a sense of how we now work to, to build resilience in our patients to help them live well and to also help them make medical decisions with the tools that we help, help them to, to develop as, um, as we work with them. And if you'll forgive the collage, uh, I just wanted to bring these ideas together that living well is really uh, what we think of when we think of adaptive coping and making decisions, making personal medical decisions is what we use our, our prognostic awareness. For. So this is the model that we hold as we work with our patients. I'd like to thank a lot of people that have contributed to these ideas. The MGH Research Collaborative, Vicki Jackson, Jennifer Temmel, Diana Dill is a, um, a therapist who's worked with our group around resiliency and a lot of the resiliency ideas come from her. And then my patients, Matt Burnett and his wife, Kimberly and Betsy. And then just to say this, this work is an ongoing body of work that really reflects our lived experience as we try to think about what's helpful for our patients. And it comes from a, a variety of sources, including self-reflection, group discussion, chart review. We've had an analysis done of our clinicians kind of within a semi-structured interview. And then we've also collaborated with CAFSI to think with other sites about what rings true and what are people doing around the country um, just to make sure that this body of work matches the practice, um, of other, practice patterns of other people. So thank you. Thank you. Questions and comments? Arnie? Yes. Well, that, that was oh. absolutely brilliant. And oh, thank you. Stage four Hodgkin's for 13 years, in and out of remission. Everything you say is right on. But there's more than, this is more than a grand rounds presentation. This should somehow or other be placed throughout the medical educational curriculum. And the students should be hearing about this in the first year, the second year. And it applies not only to oncology, I'm a cardiologist. So right. This is exactly what we need to tell our cardiac patients. Because in the end, life is a fatal disease. And <laughs> well, I, the more I do this, the more I feel like the best antidote is a, is a well-lived life. The more we can have patients live well before they get sick, the better. But yes, I think that that's right. And I th our hope is that we start to really get the ideas firm, firmly named, and then we can, we can bring them out more broadly. Um, so thank you. Yes. You said something interesting at the beginning of your talk, you know, the phrase you used was something like, you know, I'm not a priest, I'm not your best friend, but let me show you how, and you sort of were showing how what you're talking about fits within the role of a physician. Yes. And yet, in a way, I think you are reframing what that means, particularly the live well part. You're, you're talking about how to live life well. It's quite philosophical, isn't it? Yes. 
wonder if you could talk a little bit about either uh, how you understand your role outside of the biomedical model or how, how you dealt with pushback against people saying, well, that's not a physician's role. You know, I really try and put it, pull it into the biomedical model in terms of decision making. When I'm working with patients, I'm thinking kind of, what's this going to be like for you? Is this going to be short and we're going to have to make decisions very quickly? Are we going to have years and you're going to be able to adapt to this slowly over time and I can kind of let you be? So I'm, I'm figuring out what their disease trajectory is going to be like. I'm also trying to figure out what their cognitive function is, right? So one of the classic examples in my mind are patients with melanoma often have a lot of brain metastases, right? And they will look great. They don't have any anorexic cachexia. They will often look very, very healthy until their brain metastases swell a little too much and then they're completely debilitated. And so I'm trying to figure out are you going to be able to make decisions? Are you going to be able to do some of the work that you need to do before you're too sick from this illness? And is it going to be a cliff that you fall off that you're not ready for? And so in my, my framework is very much about how am I going to individually prepare you given what I know medically about what's going to happen to you. And, and you know, the, it, it has a kind of a, a psychosocial feel to it, but I think it's really within this medical frame for patients that are really struggling emotionally, psychologically, we pull in other people. So, you know, if, if, if there's a lot of depression, if there's a lot of anxiety, that's, that's more than this body of work is going to be able to manage. And so we also use other services when it can feel very heavy in that realm. But a lot of what we're doing is, I frame it as, as medical. Yes? I have to ask a question about primary care. I'm yes. That you borrowed some from primary care, which really um, has embraced the biopsychosocial model yeah. for, for quite a while. Um, has anybody studied the efficacy of this work that takes place not in the context of a palliative care referral, but rather in the context of a primary care relationship that's been pre-existing Absolutely. for many years? I've often felt that I do my best work after I've known somebody for five or ten years, and then they, I can help them facing serious illness. Has anybody compared or looked at that population? I think that that's right, and I think even early palliative care is borrowing from that wisdom, right? We're getting them earlier so that we know them longer, so that there's more of a base to have these decisions. What needs to happen, there's not enough palliative care doctors to do all the work that needs to be done. And as we figure out what what we think is effective, it needs to be brought out into the primary care clinics. And people are starting to look at models, like consultant models, where you have someone embedded in clinic as a consultant to the other physicians to help them do this work or figure out you know, ways to be comfortable in it. Because I think it's absolutely right. There's so much relationship there that we can build on when we help think about preparing our patients for these things. Yeah. Brian? Some of my most resilient patients kind of reviewed as a pain in the neck. Oh, tell me more. That's interesting. And, and so I, I just wonder, you know, when I, early on in my career, I mean, I kind of viewed them the same way, but and, and I, often I see people get defensive when patients are, I know patients who, who are very resilient often ask a lot of questions or focusing on many things and they turn people off by that. And I just wonder, I mean, how do you, it's not always a collaborative relationship early on and how you, how you deal with that. Say a little bit more about not always being collaborative. Well, I mean, I think patients sometimes, maybe it's, they challenge physicians with, 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 with questions that seem maybe out of context in the, or, or on the wrong path. Maybe it's denial, I don't know, but sometimes that creates this, this tension that I see, you know, particularly with the house staff with a really complicated dialysis patient. You know, they view them differently than say a clinician has known them for a long time. And 
I know sometimes I just think that, that we end up heading down the wrong path therapeutically because uh, it, it just leads to a conflict rather than this collaborative thing. That I feel like with the, my best model for that is actually that, that oscillation back and forth because what happens with that is you actually have to discard a fair amount of information, right? So every time somebody says something wildly optimistic, I actually discard that pretty much and I'm, like, I'm looking for the pieces of realism because that's helping me kind of chart what they understand. And I feel like what you're describing is something similar, like how do we train people to not attend to everything and, and kind of navigate better? And, and my observation, certainly with how patients cope, is that our instincts are backwards. Usually our instinct is to attend to the optimism and to disregard everything else. And, and I actually will train people to do the opposite of that. Um, uh -huh. Yes? You are, uh, you're so articulate and, um, uh, and clear thinking that I'm going to take a, a risk to ask you this question okay. <laughs> about what this, um, what this work means, means to you. Uh, to, to do this work. Um, you're, you, you presented on a cognitive plane that uh, makes me very happy that there are other people besides Sharona Sachs who are so able to express themselves so beautifully. Um, but what, what does this work, what does your doing this work mean to you? Um, you know, it's, it's, it means different things. So there's, um, and you've alluded to this, there's an intellectual component that's very exciting and comes from a place of being in, in darkness, right, of kind of waiting around, of not being good at this, of not being able to figure out how to be effective, of screwing things up, getting couples in fights. You know, there's, there's a way that this was a new domain for us in early palliative care, and I would be in a room and I'd just be like, I wasn't sure of my role, and so I took many years to really try and think clearly about what my role is and then what I was doing. So that on a very intellectual level, that is what it means. You know, on a very personal level, I, I alluded to the patient I took care of with the neuromuscular disease. It was very satisfying to be able to be helpful to him, right? Like we, we were in this room and he was just, he was so upset and it was, the interview was kind of all over the place and even I was like, okay, how are we gonna give this some form? How are we gonna make this be therapeutic? And to be able to kind of pull it together with some concrete steps that we were gonna do that were gonna help him in this situation where, you know, we don't even, we don't know how long he's gonna be like this, we know what his function's gonna be like, he's gonna have to leave his work. I mean, there was so much awful sadness in that room and to be able to just like make that a little bit better felt, felt very satisfying and gratifying and important. Um, for him, you know. So. I see a lot of hands in only a few minutes, but I'm going to go to Ed for a moment. Just a question about how culturally and religiously agnostic this is, what patients bring in terms of hopes and aspirations in their family component. The examples are two purely educated Caucasians. Yeah. How do you fold that into it? You know, um, I, I fi it, it fits fairly well because any hope is fine. You know, I think people have hopes um, that are religious hopes, hopes around what God is going to do. And the, the framework is really that that's, that's all fine, that, that we understand that that is a manifestation of, of coping. And, and I know faith, and I didn't want to belittle it all, but that that, that is, um, that you're, that's how you express this. There's also something about, there's the classic patient of the patient who's waiting for a miracle that can also cause a, a, some tension within our field because it's hard 
to kind of reconcile the faith with the kind of what's happening medically. And I often think of those patients from my perspective as also having probably a fairly deep understanding of prognosis because to, to wait for a miracle means to also acknowledge that a miracle is needed and that things are pretty bad. So with that limited example, that's also another way that I fit it into this framework. I'll take your question and then we'll end with Dan. Thanks for a great presentation. Uh, I had a very talented physician friend who died at age 49 from yes. a multiforming. And he described himself like Tarzan is a vine swinger. He said that as he searched for different cures <laughs> and palliative uh, uh, measures. Uh, it's a lovely vine, analogy. And then he'd lose the vine. He yes. Vine, yes, that's vine, lovely. And finally he ran out of vines. Yes. And he died a very good death in, at peace. Um, having finished his vine swinging. So I, I'd love Thank you. I, 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 this, it's beautiful, actually, to think about that. Thank you. So I'm a rheumatologist, and I don't yeah. deal with patients who die very frequently. But it, um, it appeared to me that everything that you said is applicable to chronic illness yes. in general, not yes. um, And I deal with that every day. And all these um, techniques are things that ring true to me um, in trying to help patients cope with their illness. And I think there's this, like a continuum where early palliative care becomes chronic illness. I, and I think that that's right, that, that these things can be very helpful in that population. I believe, yeah. Well, I would like to say and echo what Arnie said. All of this should be built in from day one of any health provider uh, as being mindful of um, the, the impact of having a great life as a <laughs> life. And in light of all the things we've gone through in the last 48 hours yeah. or so, just do a lot of self-reflection about your own life. Uh, try to enjoy what you have and, um, and carry on. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure.